Lori and Sarah for that song. The book of Hebrews this morning, chapter number 3, and I invite you, don't forget him folks. He says, wait on me, wait on me. Well, I wish some grown-ups would get that excited about being at church. Amen. Thank God for our children and all those that work with our children's ministry. Hebrews chapter number 3, Hebrews chapter number 3, and this morning we're looking, beginning in verse number 7, this is the Word of God. Verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We'll stop there. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the truth in these words, Lord. I pray today, God, that as I preach this truth, you'd take it, Lord, and uh, touch our hearts, change our hearts, and make our lives glorify you. Help us, Lord, to see your sufficiency in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I'm preaching this morning on this subject, Our Sufficient Savior. Our Sufficient Savior. Through three chapters of the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ has been presented in His supremacy. We've seen Christ is better than the angels. We've seen He's better than Moses. He is supreme above all, and thus we get the theme for the whole book, it just doesn't get any better than Jesus. That's the theme. And chapters 1 and 2 presented Him as a supreme Lord. Something else we see in this book of Hebrews is throughout the book, there are going to be five warning passages. We've already looked at one of these warnings, the warning that told us to not neglect our salvation. Don't neglect so great a salvation. This morning, we come to the second warning of these five warnings. And this warning does not have to do with the salvation of Christ. This warning is concerning the sufficiency of Christ. A lot of saved people never grow and develop into the fully mature, fully dedicated believers that Christ saved them to be. And the reason they don't mature is because they do not trust in the sufficiency of Christ. If you're saved today, I, I need you to understand that your eternity is taken care of. You don't, you don't worry about losing your salvation. The saved person is not in danger of going to hell. You're in danger of missing the fullness of your salvation. And there's a difference, you see. It's not a question for you of whether or not you'll go back to being lost. The question is whether you'll move forward to being mature as a Christian. And the key to maturity as a saved person is not how well you behave 
or how many things you don't do that you used to do or how many things you do that you didn't used to do. That's not the question or the key to it at all. It's not your behavior. The key to maturity in the Christian life is how sufficient is Jesus Christ in your life. The rest of Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 presents our sufficient Savior. And this morning, for just a few minutes, I'm going to preach on that subject. He is sufficient to make your life, your Christian life, a life of victory, a life with rest in it. And I'm, I'm afraid far too many Christians stop short of God's best for their life. They get saved and then they just stop right there. He's sufficient for so much more. And the writer of Hebrews is going to talk to us about making Christ sufficient in our life. He gives us three simple things I want to talk to you about. First of all, the writer of Hebrews shows us an example or the example of failure. He goes back now to an Old Testament passage. You'll notice in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10, and 11. Do you notice those words are all capitalized in your Bible? When you see those all caps, what it's saying is the writer's telling you there, I'm quoting from the Old Testament. So you know that that passage comes from the Old Testament. And it actually comes from Psalm chapter 95. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But he goes back and he illustrates failure in the believer's life with an Old Testament story. You know, your Old Testament was written for your learning. Uh, your Old Testament was written to be an illustration for you in a lot of ways. And these illustrations from the Old Testament, they're very true. And the writer of Hebrews is going to draw from one of these truths to illustrate a very important truth about the New Testament Christian life. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to brand new converts, but these converts were Jews. They believed implicitly in the Old Testament. Uh, they hadn't been saved long, and they didn't understand a lot about the Christian life. Uh, you know, as I thought about that this week, you know, when I got saved, I didn't understand much about the Christian life either. Uh, when you got saved, you didn't understand much about the Christian life. I understood that there was a hell to shun and a heaven to gain, but beyond that, the day I got saved, I didn't know that there was much more to the Christian life. It took some time before I understood there's more to Christianity than just getting a get-out-of-hell-free card. But some people never move beyond that place. They just come to an altar, they say, God saved me. And then they just kind of drift through the rest of life. They never mature in the faith. And I'm not getting on to you about that this morning. I, I just want to encourage you to listen to what I'm about to say. When you just drift through the faith, you miss so much that God has for you as a Christian. You settle for so much less of a Christian life than God wants you to have. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there is rest for a Christian. Not just eternal rest, not just that rest they put on the tombstone, rest in peace. Beloved, I want you to know you don't have to get to a graveyard to rest in the peace of God. You can have that peace today. There can be rest for you on this side of eternity. And many believers fail in their Christian life to obtain any kind of rest on this side. Oh, they know that eternity is taken care of, but they struggle with everything else between here and heaven. And Jesus didn't intend for your life to be a constant struggle with no rest. The writer of Hebrews gives us an example of how we fail in the Christian life to obtain all that God wants us to have in verse 7 and 8. Listen to the warning. He says, Wherefore, 
as the Holy Ghost saith. This is not the words of the writer of Hebrews. He's saying God is speaking here and he's quoting the Old Testament. You know, when the Bible speaks, that's God speaking. Somebody say amen. Does God still speak today? Yes, he does. He speaks in his word. He says, as the Holy Ghost saith, verse 7, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, at the beginning of verse number 7, we see that word, wherefore. And you remember the word wherefore and the word therefore, those words tie us, what we're reading, to the immediate context here. And what he's been saying to us already in chapter 3 is that we need to consider Jesus. You remember we talked about that last week? We need to consider Christ, that he's more than just a Savior. He, he, he is the one that holds the title of the apostle sent from God. He's the one that holds the title of being your high priest. He's not just your Savior. He's the reason we could bow our heads and pray just a few minutes ago. He's the reason for that song they sang, that when you don't feel like praying, you can pray because he is our high priest. We consider his trustworthiness, that uh, we can trust him for more than just our soul's salvation. There's more you can trust him for. Uh, we, uh, we consider the thought of Christ, what he is capable of doing. Last week, the writer of Hebrews reminded us that Moses was able to build a tabernacle with all that gold and all the things Moses did as a testimony. But think about what Jesus was able to do, what he's capable of taking a bunch of misfits like us, a bunch of wretched sinners, and building a glorious church. Think about what he's capable of doing and how he it, it gives the testimony that he's the son that rules over this house we call the church. Christ is capable of so much more than just saving your soul. That's the ultimate thing that He can do for you, but He wants to do so much more for you than just saving you. That's what the writer brings to this conversation. He says, because of all of that, because we have considered Christ, wherefore, because of all those things, He says, now, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts, He says. Harden not your hearts. Now, we could say those words to a lost person. We could say, dear lost friend, don't harden your heart when God speaks to you. But this, uh, this isn't written to a lost person. If you told a lost person don't harden their heart against God, that'd be good advice. But in this passage, he's telling a saved person not to harden their heart. The passage here is a quotation from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 speaks specifically to the nation of Israel. It's talking about when they came out of Egypt. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. And something happened in that 40 years that they wandered around that caused them to fail as believers. They were believers. I mean, they had been through the Exodus. You remember Passover? Were the children of Israel that come across the Red Sea, were they under the blood? You remember Passover? They were under the blood. They had made the sacrifice. They were trusting God for their salvation and for their eternal deliverance. They trusted all that. But what happened when they got out of Egypt? They entered into the wilderness and the failure of their believing life began. I want to show you from these verses how the children of Israel, God's children, how they failed in their walk as believers. And this is a warning to me and you so that you and I don't fail. I don't want to be a failure. Do you, want to, you don't want to be a failure, do you? But you can be a failure in the Christian life. 
You can be a failure in the Christian life. And listen to how he explains this. The first thing that will bring failure into your Christian life is, number one, when you forget God's blessings. When you forget God's blessings. Look at verse number 9. He says, when your fathers tempted or tested me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. You remember when they were over there in the wilderness, how they wandered around 40 years and God showed himself faithful? Boy, God just blessed them. I mean, their shoes didn't wear out. He gave them manna to eat, put bread out there on the ground for them, gave them fresh meat to eat. When it got hot during the daytime, God put a cloud up there to shade them. When it got cold in the desert at night, He put a pillar of fire there so they could stay warm and build their camp around that big ball of pillar of fire that came out of the sky. They, they had all of that provision of God, and yet they would not trust Him. Oh, they trusted Him to get Him out from under Pharaoh. They trusted Him to get Him out of bondage and slavery but they couldn't trust Him once they got out there in the wilderness to provide their needs. They forgot all about how God miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea. They forgot about His greatest blessing of delivering them. And so now they get out in the wilderness and they won't trust Him for anything else. They're just murmuring and grumbling and griping and complaining. Back up there in verse 8, the Bible tells us their heart had gotten hard. It says in verse number 8, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. What was the provocation of those Jews? The word provocation means rebellion. In other words, they were one of God's children, but they were some of God's rebellious children. Israel literally rebelled against their heavenly father after they got out of Egypt. They got over there in the wilderness, and despite all the miracles that God had done on their behalf by raising up Moses, getting them across the Red Sea, drowning Pharaoh's army, they got over there on the other side, and man, they started building golden calves to worship and idol worship and got, got into all this stuff. They did not fully trust Him. So quickly they forgot His blessings. Beloved, I want you to know this morning, the minute you forget who your blesser is, you're on the road to failure in your Christian life. Failure. Look at how God is affected by this. Verse 10, God says, I was grieved with that generation. The word grieved in the Hebrew language has a stronger emphasis than it does in our uh, English language. We think of grieving, our mind goes to a funeral home, somebody weeping in sadness. But grieving in the Hebrew was not simply sadness, it was more of sickness. It, it, it disgusted God. It disgusted Him. He was, he was grieved to the point of disgust. You see, when you trust God for eternity, for heaven, and you won't trust Him with this life here on earth, it disgusts God. God thinks to Himself, I died for their sin. I sent my son to die for their sins. I saved them, I redeemed them, and they can't trust me with that job this week? They can't trust me with their marriage, their relationship? In Revelation 3, Jesus had a word for the church at Laodicea. You remember they uh, weren't hot or cold, they were lukewarm. They were rich and increased with goods, and the Bible said that they said they have need of nothing. Oh, they were glad to be a part of the church, they were glad to be saved. They just said, we don't need you for anything else, God. Uh, just get us on the road to heaven and we'll take it from here. 
Don't tell us how to live. Don't tell, we don't need you for anything. The Bible says that God said, the Lord said, I, I'll spew you out of my mouth. He, it disgusted God that they didn't need Him, that they forgot His blessings. Friend, forgetting the blessings of God will bring you to the brink of failure in your Christian life. Remember where your blessings come from. And when we come into this place, lift a hand and, and sing and worship Him and say, Thank you, Lord, for your blessings on my life. We see further in verse 11, a second example of their failure is not only did they forget God's blessings, but they forfeited God's best. They forfeited God's best. Look at verse 11. We see what God's best is. God says, so I swear, verse 11, in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. R-E-S-T. They shall not enter into my rest. Now, you need to understand the word rest right here in this passage is synonymous with Canaan. Canaan. Canaan land. That's what happened. Because the Jews forgot God's blessings and wouldn't trust Him after they got out of Egypt, He said, I swear, you're not going to enter into my rest. You're not going to enter into Canaan. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, they didn't. Did Moses make it into Canaan land? No. Brother Kirby, me and you stood right over there at the Dead Sea, saw up there on Mount Nebo. That's as far as Moses came. He looked over into the promised land, and God took his life and buried him up there on Nebo somewhere. There was only two out of that bunch named Joshua and Caleb. Caleb. They got to go in. The, the rest of them wandered around in circles for 40 years, died out there in the wilderness. They just trusted God, quit their murmuring and grumbling. They could have made the journey across that wilderness in 11 days. But of those that left Egypt, now they had children out there in the wilderness. There were more than just Caleb and Joshua that went into the promised land. But of those that left Egypt and made it into the promised land, it was just Caleb and Joshua. I want you to understand, they could have left Egypt, went across that wilderness, and right into Canaan land, in 11 days. Walking. They could have made it in 11 days. But because they said, we don't trust God. We're, we're going to grumble. We're going to complain. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, when you're worrying and grumbling and complaining, you're not trusting God. Somebody say amen. God says, you're going to worry and grumble and complain. I'll tell you what I'll let you do. I'll let you wander around in circles. And they wandered around in circles for 40 years. 40 years. They forfeited God's best. Forfeited. Now let me show you. You say, well, what's this have to do with me? This is Israel. Well, listen, Egypt, Egypt over here represents redemption. Okay, coming out of Egypt. You over there in bondage, over there in slavery, that's a picture of a lost man's life. You understand that? Picture of a lost person's life. Over there in bondage. God raises up a deliverer. To lead you out of bondage. Who's our deliverer that leads us out of bondage? Who's, who's our Moses? The Lord Jesus. The one that leads us out of bondage. Leads us across the Red Sea. That's, that's a picture of redemption. We were released from Egypt. And now, God wants us to come out of Egypt and go right into Canaan. Canaan. That's where the children of Israel were headed for. Canaan is the place God wants you to go right when you get saved. 
Now, Canaan is a place of victory. Canaan is the place of rest. Canaan is the place where you obtain God's promises. Canaan is something you can enjoy right here. Now, it would seem to me that some songs that we sing in the church seem to indicate that Canaan represents heaven. We don't get our theology from hymn books, okay? We don't get our theology from song books. Canaan land is not heaven. Canaan land is not heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, when we get to heaven, when they got over to the Canaan land, they had to fight battles. Walls were falling down. People were dying. That ain't going to happen in heaven. Somebody say glory. <laughs> there ain't going to be no battles in heaven. Canaan land is a place that pictures this life as a successful believer that trusts the sufficiency of Christ. You go through battles, but you enjoy the victory. God brings you through it, and you see the blessing of God. That's what God wants for you after you get saved. He wants to rest your soul right down here. God wants to take the believer to the promised land. Not talking about heaven. I'm talking about the life of rest in the life of a Christian. But far too many Christians, they don't move into Canaan. They just kind of stay there on the banks of the Red Sea. They just stay there. They don't surrender to the leadership and the lordship of Christ to follow Him on into the life of victory. Instead of entering into a life of rest, they wander around aimlessly through the Christian life just waiting for the day they get hit by a truck and die and go to heaven. That's just how they live. The writer of Hebrews gives them a warning. He says, now that you've been saved, here's your warning. Don't have an old hard heart now and circle around in the wilderness for 40 years. Sell out now completely to Jesus. Trust Him for everything, not just your soul. Certainly trust Him with your soul, but trust Him with everything. Trust Him with today and tomorrow and next week. And if you don't, He says, your Christian life will become another example of failure. Just like these Jews, you'll wander around for 40 years in the wilderness and never see the promised land that God had for you here. Here. That's the example of failure. Notice, secondly, this morning, the writer of Hebrews gives an exhortation to the family. The exhortation to the family. Look at verse 12. Remember, he's talking to saved people. You see that in verse 12. Take heed. What's that next word? Brethren. Brethren. He's talking to saved people, people in the family of God, but failing at the Christian life. Now he's going to give them an exhortation, a strong command. They need to pay attention, and we need to pay attention. Here's what the first part of this exhortation says in verse 12. The first thing it tells them is to heed the warning. Heed the warning. Verse 12. Take heed. Heed the warning. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Take heed means listen. Listen. Obey what I'm telling you, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. You say, preacher, that doesn't sound like he's talking to a believer. I want you to know whether you're saved or lost. When you don't trust God, that's evil. That's evil when you don't trust God. When you don't believe that God has said something, when you don't believe it is true and take it for what he says. There's Christians today, they believe that God can save their soul but they don't believe God can save their marriage. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's evil thinking. That's what he's saying here. You believe that God can save your soul from hell, but you don't believe God can provide for your financial need. That is evil. God says that's evil to unbelieve Him that way. You trust Him for heaven, sure, but the writer of Hebrews says, be warned here, you're not trusting Him for anything but heaven. There's so much more to trust Him for. When you live that way, you're not in fellowship with God. So He exhorts the family, heed the warning. When you distrust the very God that saves you, let me tell you what it does. It insults His ability. Uh, it, it grieves Him because He knows He's got so much more for you than, than you're allowing Him to give you. He wants to give you rest. He wants to give you victory right now in your life. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Take heed because you're throwing God's rest, God's victory, you're throwing it away. You, you, you've hunkered down for heaven. And, and some, some of you just miserable all the way between here and glory. I ain't saying the Christian life is a bed of roses. But I'm telling you what, it ain't a bag of lemons either. You don't have to settle for, for, for no sweetness in the Christian life. There, there ought to be some joy and some victory in the Christian life. Heed the warning. Take the first exhortation. Take heed. Notice the second part of the exhortation to the family. Verse 13 says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The second thing you need to do is not only heed the warning, but on your way to heaven you need to help the weak. Help the weak in the family. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There are some people in this room. If you don't help them, they're going to get deceived in their sin of distrusting God for their needs. Their old heart's going to get hard. Uh, that's what he, he means here when he says to exhort one another daily. Help that weaker brother. I mean, you and I, we need to trust God. And then we need to encourage our brothers in Christ that they need to trust God. Not for the soul's salvation. I'm talking about trust God with everything else. I mean, look at what it says in verse 13. Exhort one another. What's the next word there? Exhort one another daily. Write that down. Make yourself a note of that. Put it down somewhere tomorrow. And go ahead and figure out who you're going to exhort tomorrow. Do you know that we're called to exhort each other daily? You ought to have somebody every day that you're encouraging. Encouraging them to trust God more and more and more. You say, I, I don't have to do that. They know that already. I don't have to go around telling everybody to trust God. Beloved, they forget. Just like you're going to forget and you're going to need one of them to come and encourage you to trust God. I, I mean, listen, we got a responsibility to exhort and to encourage one another to trust God. I may be on the verge of failure, on the brink of failure, when one of you comes up to me and you says, Preacher, it's going to be okay. You can trust God for this. And that may be the very thing that keeps me from going off the edge. He says, exhort one another daily. That's our daily job, my daily job, your daily job. We ought to be telling some dear brother, some dear sister, every day, you can trust God. When, when, when people tell you, here's a, here's a perfect, real practical Way to put that into your Christian life. You go out here today and you're on the porch shaking hands after after church and 
You get to talking to a brother or sister in Christ, and they start telling you about the week coming up. And they say, oh, I got a, I got a bad doctor visit to go to this week, and I got some tests, and I'm just, I'm just a little bit nervous about that. Right there. Hey, brother, you ought to just trust God, man. If he wanted you dead, you'd already be in a grave. <laughs> trust God. Encourage him right there. Just like that. That's what he's saying here. Exhort them. They're obviously weak, and they're worried. So, so help them out. Help them out. Help them to keep on keeping on. That's why we have fellowships. That's why we go on marriage retreats. That's why we have youth functions. That's why we spend so much time together, because we're called on to exhort one another. Listen, I want to challenge this congregation. Listen, let's just be the most encouraging place in, in, in all of Dallas, Georgia. I want Northside to be so encouraging. People either love to see us or they run when they see us coming. That's what we ought to be. Just so encouraging. I guarantee you, listen, when you help the weak, there's some weak Christians, even in this field today. And when you help them, you're going to keep them from just walking away. You, you're going to Help, help them from failing. Keep them from failing in the Christian life. Prop them up. Prop them up. Remember old Moses? He even got weak in the time of battle. Aaron and that guy named Hur propped his arms up and held him up. I thank God for men like Hur, don't you? <laughs> men that can prop us up and help us, that can help the weak. Let's, let's be that. That's the warning here. Go exhort the family. Encourage each other. Y'all encourage me. I'll encourage you. Encourage one another. I, I've been in some churches. Brother, I hope you don't ever go to any of them. I've been into some churches where, boy, they have the gift of discouragement. I mean, it don't take long to find out those that are extra gifted to discourage. Don't be that way. Go against the grain. I don't want to be that person that pushes that brother right off the edge and causes them to quit coming to church or causes them to fail in their Christian life. You know why I don't want to push them down? Because there may be a day when I need him to pick me up. And so he needs to be there. He needs to be there. Sometimes we need to be encouraged. Take one second. Look at your neighbor right now and say, sometimes I need to be encouraged. That's why we need to exhort one another. Exhort one another. Let's build each other up in the faith. Amen? Amen. All right. One more thing. We move now to the fourth chapter. And in this fourth chapter, the writer of Hebrews shows us what I call the enjoyment of the faith. The enjoyment of the faith. In chapter 4, we get to where God wants us to be. The place of rest. The place where we enjoy the Christian life. The, the place where we enjoy the victory of being saved and the rest of being a child of God. Some of you need to hear this today. There is rest available for you when you get saved. Rest in your life. I'm not talking about the lost person right now. I'm talking about the person that's trusted the Lord as his or her Savior and life is beating you to death. I'm here to tell you, some of you, you're consumed with doubt and worry and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, even though you've been saved, God can rest you in the midst of that stuff. He can rest you in the midst of it. Just like it wasn't God's will for Israel to go through the uh, wilderness, it's not God's will for you to wander around aimlessly in the Christian life with no rest. In verse 4, look at verse 4. The writer of Hebrews says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all of his works. 
writer of Hebrews illustrates this kind of rest God's got for us by reminding us that when God created all this on the seventh day, God rested. Why'd God rest? Was God tired? No, God wasn't tired. God rested to give us the example that we need to rest. You and I need to rest. I mean, the Bible says the Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers. He doesn't need rest. He gives us the example because there are times He knows we need rest. We need physical rest. We need emotional rest. We need spiritual rest. Sometimes, brothers, i just got to sit down in a chair and just not move. Just not move. Last church I was pastoring, we got some new chairs for, for the stage. And they, want, they, were, they were looking all over for the kind of chairs that matched all the decor. And the only ones they found were these Queen Anne looking chairs. But they had a little button on them right here on the side. I didn't realize it. They were recliners. <laughs> the guy on our building committee up there, he, he got a bolt and went up underneath the bottom of it and screwed it down so it wouldn't pop out. He said, I don't want people thinking our preacher's up there sleeping. I said, bless God, I wonder why they have them sleep when I preach. Let me, let me rest. <laughs> he was afraid I was going to sit back and kick back one day. You know, sometimes, maybe not here, but sometimes we just got to take a load off and rest physically. These bodies tell us we need to rest. We need to rest. Friday afternoon, we were up there in, in, in the mountains. Uh, we had our uh, afternoon where we went out and Carrie and I, we went uh, Pigeon Forge went through a museum, and then we come back. We had a well about six hours there, just couple time for all of our couples to go out on dates or whatever. And we came back to our room and fell asleep. And we just rested. We rested, and we got a phone call. It woke us up, but but we it, uh, until we got a phone call. Thanks, son. Uh, <laughs> we, we were doing fine because these bodies they need they need rest. They need rest. Sometimes you need emotional rest. You know, some people make you tired. Can I, can I confess this as a pastor? Uh, y'all don't want to hear this as a hear your pastor say this, so I'll just say that some of y'all need the rest. Sometimes there's some people that you need to get away from. Now, I don't have that privilege maybe as a pastor. I've I got to try to be available for everybody. But you know what I'm saying? When some people, man, I'm talking about... Just, I mean, they just... You can't be around them without getting frazzled. And you need a little space. That's, that's emotional rest. You're about to, I mean, you're not physically tired. You're just about to go crazy. And you need to come, sometimes it's not a person. Sometimes it's, it's a, a, a task or something. Or just noise. Just noise. It had rained so much up there. And we had a balcony there in our room. And we'd open that door and just, you, that, the sound of that river up there in Pigeon Forge, or Gatlinburg, just the sound of the river, you, you couldn't hear anything else but the water. And that was so nice because it kind of just drowned out everything else. Sometimes you need that kind of rest, just emotionally, just to drown everything else out. But sometimes you can have physical rest and emotional rest and still be missing the most important kind of rest. But that's what he's talking about here. Spiritual rest. Spiritual rest. Just as physical rest is important for physical victories, Spiritual rest is important for spiritual victories. Uh, when my son played high school football on Friday afternoon, get out of school at 3 o'clock, kickoff, Friday night football wasn't until 7. There's four hours between the end of school and the beginning of the football game. About 6 o'clock, they'd go out there to the field and do all the pregame. So there's really about three hours there for them to, uh, to wait. But the coach never would let them leave school. He'd never let them go home. 
You know why? My, my high school football coach wouldn't let us go home after school. Some of y'all that played ball, you know the same thing. Coach made you stay right there. And they didn't have a, a, a hotel room that you'd go lay in and take a nap at the school. Them boys, they'd get tackling dummies and they'd make a pillow out of them. Just find a corner, cool corner of the locker room and just lay there. Sure, Zach did the same thing, you know, just lay there and, and rest. Charlie probably did the same thing out in the kitchen, just lay there and rest. You know why? Because the coach knew if they were going to have victory that night, them boys needed to rest. He knew if he let them go home, They'd be out riding dirt bikes and four-wheelers and playing video games. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be feeling rest. You've got to have rest if you're going to enjoy victory. Listen to me today. Listen to me. Spiritual rest is critical to spiritual victory. I, I even think physical rest can be critical to spiritual victory. Physical can be uh, crucial to spiritual victory. You know, when I'm tired, I'm more apt to sin. Any of y'all? When your body gets tired physically, that's when your temper pops off like just blows like that. When you're tired, when you're sick. Uh, we need physical rest. We need spiritual rest. How do you obtain that rest? Look at verse 5 and 6. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in, therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. He's talking about those children of Israel that wandered around. You know when they got out of Egypt, you know where they went first? Kadesh Barnea. You know what happened when they got to Kadesh Barnea? They wanted to go to the promised land, so they sent out a group of spies. Spies come back. They say, oh, we're not going to be able to go. What do you mean we're not going to be able to go? We can't go to the promised land. Why can't we go to the promised land? We just got out of Egypt. That's where God's taking us, the promised land. Yeah, but there's giants over there in those lands. Well, we can't go over there. I mean, compared to them, we look like grasshoppers. They're giants. We're not going. And some of them even murmured so much to say, let's get us a leader that will take us back to Egypt. Are you kidding me? They'd kill you in a second when you got back over there in Egypt. Forget being slaves again. You'd be dead when you got back over there. They'd gone insane. There was two of them that said, we'll trust God, Caleb and Joshua. The rest of them failed to understand that a God that can save your soul from death and hell can also meet your needs to get you to the promised land. They failed to understand that. They should have been enjoying the promised land 11 days after they left the banks of the Red Sea. But they didn't enjoy the faith life because of unbelief. Unbelief. They eventually got to Canaan. Uh, they got there. They had battles. Joshua was the one that led them into Canaan. It wasn't Moses. Moses didn't make it into Canaan. But even Joshua couldn't give them the spiritual rest. Look at verse 9. You might make a note of this just for later in your Bible study. This is an interesting translation of the word Joshua in verse 8. It says, for if Jesus had given them rest. Talking about the Jews. If Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Now, it was Joshua that led them into the promised land, wasn't it? It was Joshua. Most places in the New Testament, the word Joshua from the Old Testament is actually translated Joshua. This is one of those places that will help you to understand a little bit about Bible translation. The word Joshua in the Old Testament actually translates to the word Jesus in the New Testament. So here, if you read this, as Jesus, meaning Jesus Christ, it looks like Jesus don't give you rest. For if Jesus had given them rest, that's what it looks like. 
The word Jesus there means Joshua. It's the New Testament translation of Joshua. So what he's saying, if Joshua, the commander, New Testament meaning Jesus, if Joshua had given them rest, they would not have spoken of another kind of rest. You see, a man can't give you the kind of rest I'm talking about. I don't care how good of a man he is, a good military leader, a, a president, a preacher, he can't give you the kind of rest we're talking about. This is the kind of rest only Jesus can give you, and he wants you to have this. Jesus gives two kinds of rest. He gives Calvary rest when you get saved, and he gives Canaan rest, that rest that comes into your life after you get saved, throughout your Christian life. Now, a lot of you, he's got that rest sitting right over here for you, and he wants to give it to you. You just haven't attained that rest. It's there. Let me close with a little story. I heard about a missionary years ago in Africa. He was driving along in his truck, and he saw a national, an African, walking along carrying a heavy load on his shoulders. He was walking down an old dirt road in a hot African day. And the missionary pulled over and said, rolled his window down and said, Can I give you a ride up to the next village? He said, oh, thank you. And so he waited, and the man got his load and got into the back of the truck. And they took off down the highway. Well, about a mile down the road, the missionary looked in his rearview mirror, and he noticed that the man was still standing up in the back of the truck. He was standing like this with that load still on his shoulders. And the missionary stopped, opened the door, and he said, why are you still straining under the weight of that load? The African man said, Well, sir, I knew your truck could carry me, but I wasn't sure if it could carry my load. So I've been carrying it myself. You say, you're scratching your head right now, and you're thinking, That old boy's elevator don't go all the way to the top, does it? No, I didn't. Boy, that's a grand illustration because there's a lot of Christians, their spiritual mind, the elevator don't go to the top all the way either. Because ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus can pick you up and carry you through the doors of redemption, don't you think he can carry the rest of that load you got? He, he, he's a sufficient Savior. He's sufficient for more than just your salvation. He's sufficient for everything. I want you to bow your heads today. Let's come with a song of invitation. I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer this question not out loud, but I want you to just be honest. I want to talk first to saved people. I want to talk to people that know that you're on your way to heaven. Here's your question. Are you enjoying your salvation? Is there victory in your salvation? Is there rest? In your Christian life, have you laid every heavy load you have on Jesus? If you said no, I'm going to encourage you.